Welcome everyone to the Atomic Cinema Experiment. I am Peter and joining me as always is Tara. Tara. <laughs> Greetings citizen. Uh, this is a science fiction movie podcast. We get together, we've watched the movie, we talk about it. It's really quite that simple. And this is a vote winner every month on patreon.com slash TV. Our patrons at $5 and up get to vote between four films. And the four that were up for vote this time, oh, I think we're all 80s movies, so I say. I think that was the theme. No, I think they were all movies that took place in the solar system. Ah, you're right, you're right. That's what it was, yes. Because this is uh, related to... This one in particular is related to Europa, but there, we had Moon, we had The Martian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, you're right, you're right. Um... So, this is 2010, the year we make contact. And I had to really concentrate there, not to say the year we made contact, because I, I pointed this out. I was talking to Tara uh, yesterday. We were recording something else. And I accidentally said the year we made contact. And I think the reason why my brain keeps doing that is because 2010 has been and gone. So, my brain naturally says it in the past tense. <laughs> so. Uh, yep, we are not in the future. We are. We are, but we aren't. Well, we're in the future. The movie's not in the future. <laughs> yes. Uh, the movie's in some weird alternate timeline uh, where cell phones didn't exist in 2010. Uh, but here we are. Everyone's still using the big blocky TVs. Yep, 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 yep. Um, so this is, of course, interesting because it's not been that long. In fact, it's only been about, I don't know, six, seven episodes since we did 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was our hundredth episode, Super Spectacular. And of course, it's one of the most <laughs> prominent, influential, iconic, classic science fiction films of all time. My favorite movie. Uh, indeed. Uh, the sequel, despite the fact that I've seen the 2001 a bunch of times, the sequel, 2010, I'd never seen before. So this was a first time watch for me. You had seen it uh, before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had no I, I, I mean, I knew John Lithgow was in here. I knew that Roy Schneider was in here. Um, I didn't know that Helen Mirren was going to pretend to be a Russian. But <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that either. But you know, I I was like, oh, what do I expect from this? And you know, what's it going to be? Uh, the basic premise of the film is that you know it's nine years later, it's twenty ten, obviously, and they send out a ship to go and investigate both the Jupiter, the ship from the first film, but also the big monolith that is still there, still floating in space, right next to Jupiter. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Discovery is the name of the ship. What did I say? The Jupiter. The Jupiter, sorry. There's de- there's <laughs> definitely a, a ship called the Jupiter in something, isn't there? I'm not just making that up. Jupiter 2? Ah, yes. Lost in Space. Lost yeah. in Space, yes. I knew it was from something. Uh, but, but, but we're also talking about... <laughs> That's why I haven't seen yeah, it. But we're also talking about the planet Jupiter, so there's clearly a natural crossing of wires that can happen here. Uh, so, uh, of course, there will gradually be more and more spoilers as we talk about it, so, you know opt out any time if you feel like we're getting too too deep but um yeah i i don't know what to expect from this so usually i'll ask you what you think first but since you'd seen this before and i hadn't i'm going to jump in here with a, a general kind of thought which is that this movie is very normal and that is the weirdest <laughs> thing about it is a sequel to 2001 which obviously did not need a sequel and given how like that felt how open that film is to interpretation how 
ambiguous it is about certain things and how much you know people have spent decades and decades sitting and trying to decipher what the the meanings of that film are and we all have our own opinions we all veer towards one way or the other uh, we were mostly in sync mm-hmm. when we talked about it but 2010 uh on the other hand is a really normal movie that has characters that it introduces right at the start and it has you know we we cut back to earth at various points during the mission uh it has a score as a score people are explaining things <laughs> a lot to each other um it mm-hmm. you know has a lot more dialogue it answers a lot of things but the funny thing is <laughs> is that i just said that people have been deciphering and interpreting 2001 in different ways over the years for the past you know what 50 years now almost over 50 years whatever it's been 30 50 um, yeah 50 53 years yeah i went and saw it in theaters for the anniversary yes. 2010 on the other hand i don't know if it's really saying anything never mind enough to decipher for decades and decades no it's more about the exploration people want to go see what happened to the ship and what happened to bowman is he still alive and what is that jupiter and yeah i mean we get those answers I don't know if they're uh, satisfying. We, we, yeah, we get some answers. There's answers to be had. I don't know if I wanted any yeah. of them. Uh, and some of it, like, some of it kind of like confirms things that were better off left ambiguous, which is why I think, I think when we talked about the first film, I said that no matter what, good or bad, I was probably going to consider this film like a sort of optional, like, fan film or like an optional expansion, as <laughs> yeah. opposed to like an in canon sequel. Because it's worth mentioning, even though. The co-writer of 2001 did write the book, I believe, for 2010, right? That that yeah. original book was not a book that he wrote and then Stanley Kubrick adapted. That that was like a work that they worked on together. It was created kind of in junction with the film. So Stanley Kubrick's yep. input is just as valid and just a part of what makes 2001, 2001. So, right. The, the I mean, the only reason they, they veer off from each other, the original book, is because Stanley Kubrick made the movie and arthur c clark wrote the book and i mean they they did in conjunction with each other but then they sort of split because i mean cooper changed his mind about how he wanted to to do the ending and all that and mm. and i think uh arthur c clark just kind of stuck to what he, the original plan was and wrote that book and then wrote a sequel to it um many years later like the sequel i don't think the sequel was published until like 1981 so for odyssey for 2010 it's called odyssey 2 oh i wonder why they changed the title for the movie (laughs) yeah i don't know um odyssey 2 is a fine title um so I think, yeah, it wasn't, I think they waited so long to make the sequel because, it, I mean, it took a long time for, for Arthur C. Clarke to write a sequel. And then all of a sudden there was opportunity to Oh yeah, tell more story. if the book didn't come out until 81, then the movie clearly started, like, working, they started developing the movie probably before the book even came out. They probably got an early copy. They got the manuscript and said, all right, let's start adapting this bad boy. And, you know, like, yeah. Uh, so, so the movie... They didn't do any more though. Uh, no, that's true, that's true. I don't imagine this was super successful just because, I don't know, I never hear anyone talk about it. It just kind of exists. Like, I, I remember discovering that it, like, I remember, like, hearing it existed once and I went, wait, what? There's a sequel to 2001? What? 
and it being kind of a surprise yeah. it, was almost, it was almost like a weird bit of trivia there are more books yeah there's a 2100 i want to say is one of the i think it's a, a 2089 and there's a 3000 3000 or 3001 i'd assume 3001 but yeah yeah i'd say i'd assume so also that one came out pretty pretty late like i want to say really really late 90s or early 2000s it's just, it's funny because i think i have a lot of critiques of this film um as a sequel as a as a film with very little to say kind of on its own um but also because it's a sequel to a movie that begs to be left alone like t- 2001 yeah. is not a movie <laughs> where i want a continuation where i want like there to be answers or because it's not because when this movie like confirms things or answers certain things i don't take it as oh they finally answered it i take it as this feels like you just have to pick one of the like possibilities and just go with it so it doesn't feel any more mm-hmm. or less valid than any of the other theories that everyone had before um and even for us who like saw 2001 long before 2010 regardless of the disregarding the fact that 2010 technically was already in existence for us because it came out before we were born it, it still has that feeling to it where like i mean i don't really care what you're saying cause say hal 9000 to go awry like if, if i if that's not what i took from the original film i'm probably just going to stick with what i took because it, that's what made the film enriched for me as opposed to right. what you're you're telling me now as much as bob balaban's a likable enough guy to to be telling me these things <laughs> yeah he is somebody who whenever he pops up I'm like oh that guy. It popped up in <laughs> what two different movies that we did way back at the start of the yes. show. Uh so in fact you might have even mentioned at the time that he was in this. I don't I can't remember. It's been a long time. But you might have dropped that as a mm. bit of trivia. Maybe. I'm not sure. Get, Probably. Get ready for twenty ten. He's gonna be in there. <laughs> uh so I I would say this movie is probably very mediocre. If I'm if I'm gonna give like a, a general thought before we start talking about specifics and what it is and i mean there's i it's just such a challenge to make a sequel to something that was so um like ethereal <laughs> it's such a weird experience like when you're watching the film like when you're watching 2001 it's it's not like you're watching a, a movie it's it's almost like watching a documentary for the future i think um i would agree with that if it wasn't for the fact that i don't really find documentaries to be that ethereal either it feels more like a a religious text that you found from the future. That's... <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll that. <laughs> it feels like an out-of-body experience. It's different. Uh, right. Well, it. I mean, it does. It, it It feels special. And Even though there are things that date that movie, it, it feels kind of timeless. <laughs> um, it's like there was like a, a one last chapter of the Bible that got lost, and it was the, it was the twist ending. And we finally <laughs> found it, and that was 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> The monolith was the genesis. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure. I, I think I, think, I don't think anything exemplifies one of the main problems of this movie more than the following sort of detail that I'm about to give you. Is that I checked the where it was in the runtime, so it's just under two hours, about an hour fifty-five, including credits. And I checked the runtime when they eventually get aboard the Discovery and the, you know, Bob Balaban's looking at Hal. That takes place, like, that was, like, about an hour 10, hour 15 out of the movie. So we're an hour 15 minutes into this, just under two-hour movie, and we're still just finding the things from the first movie 
and just trying to see, oh, I wonder what happened here. Let's, let's look at things that were in the first movie. Like, really, they should have gotten to that point much earlier, and then there should have been something else that this was about. <laughs> but it never really felt like it did that. It, it always, I felt like by the time we started to get to the point where, oh, we've maybe looked at everything we should have looked at from the first movie, oh, we have to come up with a quick reason why we have to kind of try and get home. And that was that's the movie, in a nutshell. Yeah, I think a big problem I have with the film is sort of what I was getting at before, in that 2001 feels very timeless, um, but 2010 feels very 80s. It, it looks 80s. Nobody looks like they're from that... Nobody looks like they're from the future, let alone like the future of 2001, like nine years later. It, it doesn't even try <laughs> to yeah, look I, like it's part of that same there's world. There's a couple of... I mean, it doesn't try to look at the same world. I, I completely 100% agree with that. And I 95% agree that it doesn't try to look at the future. There's a couple of small things. The, there's at one point we see a kitchen that's a little bit futuristic looking. They've, they've done a bit of design work to it to give it a futuristic feel. And then the other thing is, is that before anyone leaves Earth, there's a, a scene earlier on where Roy Scheider's talking to his son and they're, and they're jogging on the road or something like that. And there's a car that goes past and it looks a little interesting, <laughs> but it has like a sound effect. It's like a zzzz as it goes past. And I'm like, okay, I think that's meant to be like fusion power or something. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. Right. Yeah. So there's a- uh, I think it's a shame though, because especially since we see the discovery on this, uh, in this movie. So like, why not make it match a little bit? Like, yeah, is- <laughs> none of the clothes look right mm-hmm. or the lightings are all strange. Like, it looks like you're watching. Uh, a B movie from from the eighties with you know some special effects. The I do think that special effects actually in space are, look pretty pretty good for the time. No, yeah, the effects look fine. I, I think to stick on the uh, the design of things, it makes sense that the ship they're on for most of the movie is different because it's it's a it's a Russian ship, so it's, it should have a completely mm-hmm. different looking design. I will critique it a little bit though because clearly they watched Alien and said, "Yeah, it looks like an alien we're, ship." We're, we're going to just <laughs> sorry, like looks like alien yeah, ship. The Stromo, it looks like, it looks like the Stromo. Uh, down mm-hmm. to the fact that not only does, does the, the the bridge have like a lot of similar type of computers and buttons, and it's kind of dark. Lots of lots of lighted buttons. There's a there's a central dining table that's kind of circular that's very Nostromo, and it's not mm-hmm. everywhere, but at least in the uh, the little sleeping pod that uh, Roy Scheider's in at one point. The, the padding on the wall, the design, uh, is very much like the white design that's in some of the hallways in the Nostromo. I was recognizing a lot of Nostromo in the ship. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's no lighted floors. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, like, white, solid lighted floors or anything like that. Like, we, there's just so much light in, in 2001. Like, everything was lit. And this is just, like, I don't know, it's dark and looks like other science fiction movies of the time. I think one of the reasons why 2001 is timeless, for the most part, is because it doesn't show Earth. Uh, well, not counting the the primates at the start, I suppose, but in terms of, like, in, the, <laughs> in the, the main timeline of the film, it never shows Earth. And I think this film starts on Earth for an extended period, and then actually cuts back to Earth a couple of times uh, throughout. Mm-hmm. And I think the Earth stuff is what especially dates it. Not to say that nothing in space does as well, because you're right, they, they kind of just look like normal astronauts from the from like present day. Like, you know, the, the outfits they're wearing uh, feel kind of like the sort of outfits astronauts would wear. Um, yeah, the, uh, why not have the same spacesuits? It's only been nine years. Yeah, it's not like a different era. It's not like, yeah. <laughs> 
things have moved on so much that everything should look different. I mean, again, it makes sense that the Russian ship looks different. It should, because it's Russian. It's supposed to be the American ship. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the design stuff's kind of weird. Um, uh, Roshider's, like, wearing short shorts and a bomber's jacket while he's working on, like, the satellites in New Mexico. That's the opening. <laughs> well, actually, that's not exactly the opening. The The actual opening is a previously on 2001 A Space Odyssey section. Yeah. Uh, but which is slowly, like, a computer's slowly typing out the facts of the, like, how the first one ended. It's like, you know, HAL 9000 malfunctioned, killed space crew, mm-hmm. uh, David presumed dead, monolith near Jupiter. It's, it's just listing all of the sort of, like, the, the bullet points of, like, what's at the end of the first movie. Although, right, yeah. Notably, notably, there's one key thing that this movie never addresses, brings up, or talks about. There's a visual of it at one point, in a way, but the original film, I don't know if you recall the ending of 2001 Space Odyssey, but there was a giant star child coming towards the Earth. <laughs> um, is it just me, or is the Earth seem like normal? <laughs> like nothing's happened? Yeah, I guess they didn't notice. <laughs> I mean, part part of me was wondering if because because later on in the film, uh, like the entity which is kind of like presenting itself as David, implies that something wonderful is about to happen, and I was wondering, oh, what if all this movie's set before the Star Child gets to Earth? What if that's the the, the sort of not a twist, but yeah, I had that thought too. Yeah, but it doesn't. There's something else to happen. So this movie's got its own thing at the end. It's not the Star Child, right? Yeah, but like while David is aging and eating his plate, he's also making these trips to. Yes. <laughs> to talk to people. Right. Yeah, I was thinking that that might be the case and that could be slightly interesting. Uh, I, but I, that goes back to my my complaint, though, that nothing in this film, like, everything in this movie is just reactionary to the first film. It doesn't really have any of its own story in any real sense. Yeah, they also do a very interesting thing with Hal, where they turn him into a hero. Yes. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, Hal, Hal 9000. So... We're introduced to the man who created Hal, played by Bob Balaban, and mm-hmm. we see that he has a computer on Earth called Sal 9000, which... Who's a woman? That felt a bit... This is one of these things that feels really fan fiction-y. Well, this is something a fan would yeah. write in, in their in their uh, Tumblr. Yeah. <laughs> the man who created Hal's got another computer called Sal 9000. And she's nice because she's got a blue light. Like, why is it the same <laughs> number for a start? Like... What... I don't know. Nothing about this made any sense to me. Uh, but he's talking to her, and then we don't see him again until he wakes up uh, when they're near Jupiter or near Europa or whatever. And a bunch of stuff happens separate, which we'll talk about in- individually. But when he eventually gets aboard the Discovery and he gets to have a look at Hal, he's like, Well, I figured out what went wrong. And Roy and all that are like, Oh, what's that? And John Lethgo's there, by the way. He's, he's, you know, he's just around. We'll talk about him. Yeah. Uh, but he's like, yeah, I mean, this, this was your fault. He looks at Roy Scheider. This is your fault. He's like, well, how's it my fault? Because these orders are contradictory. That, that's one of the things we talked about when we were talking about 2001. But basically, having to lie to the crew and keep that secret conflicted with the you know, running of the ship and the safety of everyone and all that. Um, uh, and he gets he's kind of mad about it as well he's like no you you, you did this you you corrupted my baby <laughs> my Hal um, yeah human error but of course and he does delete parts of Hal's memory so he doesn't know what he's done 
to the to the crew and so on. What's weird about it though, so I guess the one thing I kind of like is that Roy Scheider does install like an explosive on some of Hal's like like system cables, so that if Hal is going to start acting up and it becomes dangerous, he can literally just press a button that's on him and boom, right? No more mm-hmm. Hal, right? Smart. That makes sense. The characters would be idiots not to have some sort of failsafe. Um, number two, uh, they do play it like Hal could turn bad because ultimately when we get towards the third act of the film, there's a whole kind of like, okay, we kind of have to sacrifice the discovery to launch the other ship to get home before whatever big thing is going to happen happens. And mm-hmm. even, even Bob Balaban's like, you know, I'm a lot concerned how Hal might react to, to this like this news that he's essentially going to have to sacrifice not only the ship but himself. Right, it's the same conversation that Frank Poole and Dave Mo- Bowman have. Mm. Like, we don't know how Hal will react to being shut down. Yeah, and it does this thing where he's Bob Balaban's line and Hal being a very kind of logical creature, uh, a creature, you know what I mean, <laughs> being a very logical mind is saying this this new mission doesn't make any sense this countdown to this launch we're doing doesn't seem like it uh you know works for the mission doesn't like unless there's a danger is there a danger and yeah hal has this face turn because eventually bob balaban just like okay i have to be honest with you uh we essentially need you to sacrifice yourself and it's, it's not and once he's honest with them hal says i understand this is the right thing to do you should leave the ship so you're safe and i'll make sure things you know he, he goes full hero and it's like Okay. I'm not sure how you feel about any <laughs> I mean, of this. It is a very it is a very tense scene, but it does take away any of our extra theories of how from the first film of, you know, maybe that there is a since he's an artificial intelligence that we created, maybe there is a desire for him to reach the monolith first. Um that yeah. Or other things that have gone wrong. Yeah, um, I don't like them confirming any answer, to be honest. And it, <laughs> right, so does that. that. That's a problem right away. And I, I get, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're, they're going to investigate the ship from the first movie, so we're going to see a lot of it. But it does kind of have this kind of thing where it's almost relying too much on Oliver. Because even in 1984, this would be nostalgia, right? Nostalgia for people who mm-hmm. watched the original when it came out and had had it for you know the decade and a half that it existed. This would be nostalgia seeing, oh, this is the red room with all the little memory slots, you know, he's pushing them in, or, oh, there's the half <laughs> computer, or, oh, there's the spacesuit that's still hanging up, like, all, all these things, it feels like it's basking in the nostalgia, and it's like, hey, you remember all these things. But they don't look as good. They don't look as good. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of that's just out of the direction, though, because you have Stanley Kubrick, and then you have everyone else. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, uh, that's true. Even the opening, because the opening shot, once we're past the, the, the still frames with the, the text, like, doing the previously ons, when we're introduced to Roy Scheider and he's up at the satellites, like, you know, working on stuff, like, there's a sort of crane shot that starts off at the bottom of the stairs and it kind of goes up and eventually finds him, you know, tinkering with things up top. And I just kind of, like, as this is the first shot in the movie, or it's one of the, I mean, maybe it was an establishing shot first, but it's, like, one of the first shots in the movie. And I just kind of immediately went, this doesn't feel like 2001. And it was one shot. Nope. <laughs> it was one shot that did this yep. at the start. And yep. it didn't feel like 2001 immediately. Why are they wearing normal clothes? <laughs> I wasn't even thinking. I was just talking about the camera movement and the way it's shot. But you're right. Yeah, the clothes, oh, yeah. The clothes too. Well, I mean, the first, after we get our, you know, previously on section, we get the opening song, 
they also sprouts their thustra song. But it's, but it's a new, it's a new recording. They've, they've reorchestrated it. Right, and we get that with a sunrise behind the the satellite dishes that uh, Roy Chard is working on, which is in the one I think the ones in New Mexico, and it, it's just. I mean, they're trying to go for the same feeling, but it doesn't, it's not pretty. It doesn't look good. Like the, <laughs> they didn't bother to make any, like, t- to even make the satellite dish, like the part where the sun rises above or something so that it matches like in 2001 that they would do that. Um, it's, it's an ugly movie <laughs> in comparison to 2001. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm being a bit unfair. I, 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 As a science fiction movie, I do think it's, it's okay. It's okay looking. As, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think ugly's harsh for visual. It's, it's just, it's just a normal looking movie. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit standard. It's a bit ho hum. There's nothing really special about how it looks, uh, and that goes for the design of everything for the most part. Uh, yeah, but I mean, two thousand one was so special. In everything, in all of the categories, <laughs> which is why it's like a masterpiece. And I mean, I don't envy any director who is chosen to make the sequel, but I heard he wanted to. <laughs> well, here's, here's, and Kubrick was still around at the time. Well, here's the thing, though. 2001 Space Odyssey doesn't actually have everything. Like, it doesn't. There's, there's, there's things that some movies have that that does not. And uh, the main one being, like, a, a like sort of core character, uh, character arc slash drama where, you know, there's, like, an emotional story at the center for, for, a, for a character. And it almost feels like it wants to be that. It wants, like, it wants to give Roy Scheider this journey, and that's why we get introduced to his family. We get introduced to who he is and what he cares about. Um, yeah, who, by the way, is playing uh, Haywood Floyd, who was played by William Sylvester in the first film. Well, I, I, it, so he's been recast, and he doesn't seem like the same character at all. I didn't like even his personality is incredibly different. I didn't even get that that was maybe a character from the first movie. Yeah, I never even. That's the guy that. That's on the tape at the end of the film. Okay, is it? Wait, is he the one that goes to the moon? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, he's the one with the chin. Yeah, the one that goes to the moon. <laughs> the donut chin and talks to his daughter. Yes. Um. Yeah, Joe. You because know, obviously, I never, I never knew his name. <laughs> like, I don't know names <laughs> from these characters in two thousand one. Uh, because and that's not a critique of two thousand one. Two thousand one has other things. It's doing different things. It's doing something unique, but. I could see the argument of someone wanting to challenge themselves and saying, no, I want to do a movie that's about a character who's obsessed with what happened to this ship and we're going to make it a personal story of discovery or, or something and like have a completely different focus. The problem is, is that the movie never stops just being about, hey, what happened in the first movie? <laughs> and then, and we saw what happened. We know what happened. And everything mm-hmm. new it tries to add on to the mystery of the monolith just kind of makes me roll my eyes or makes me not like by the time we get to a swirling vortex opening up on jupiter that has millions of monoliths in it i'm like what is this shit this is just like trying so hard (laughs) fan fiction nonsense i think i I mean it makes sense that if we send a crew out to go see what this thing is orbiting jupiter and something happens we know what what happens that is that the computer system malfunctions and it's our fault that we didn't make it there it makes sense that there would be another trip 
unless there was a star baby that showed up. <laughs> so clearly we already have the answer. And now we have to figure out what this is instead. But that's ignored. So, I mean, the idea of sending another crew there makes sense. And the whole conflict between, you know, the U.S. and the Soviet Union is, is back in this. And they're having a second space race to get to Jupiter at this point now. Because now they both... Both countries know what's that something is there. Um, I mean, that's I think that's an okay like way to go for a sequel. Um, I just don't uh, I just don't think it's necessary, but like, okay, like if I guess if the star child thing never really makes contact with anyone, then we we need to know what happened. It would make sense that they would send another crew. Characters in the movie would need Excuse to know what happened. We don't need to know what happened. We saw what happened. We were we were satisfied. <laughs> uh, which is right, but like if you're gonna make a sequel, then like, uh, I guess that makes the most sense. Uh, what makes sense is not what isn't what works or is satisfying or fulfilling or interesting or intriguing <laughs> or any other word I can use to describe something that's I don't know. I want to exist. I like it, so I. So you, you mentioned the, the, the whole space race thing in there, and that's what the movie's drama is really supposed to come from, is that this is actually a Russian ship, and the idea is that the Russian ship is ready to go within the next few months. The Americans won't be ready for years. So the Russians are going to get there first. However, the Russians didn't have the first ship, obviously. The, you know, the Discovery was an American ship. They don't have an engineer who knows how it was built, so they don't have anyone who can quickly like fix it or access it or look at it. They don't have the person who designed Hal to like turn him on and re reprogram him and make sure nothing's going to kill them or whatever. Uh, so it's like, okay, how about we join up and the, you know, ultimately it's the Americans going with the Russians to go check this out. But the tension comes from the on Earth. We keep hearing about the Zars, uh, this dispute happening because there's a blockade. The Americans are forming a blockade somewhere in the ocean, and Honduras was a Honduras, and then. Yeah, it was in Central America. And then eventually that you know, that keeps bubbling over and later in the film, they're not declared war, but they're effectively at war because one of the ships tried to get through and the American ship, you know, sank it. And like, so it's like, okay, so we're in conflict now. Um, This all sounds like a good idea. I don't actually think the script really actually builds any tension between the american characters and the russian characters on the ship they're all just kind of vaguely like oh that's good on back there oh i guess we just have to kind of separate yeah most of the tension comes from the beginning like when when roy scheider is woken up from his cryo sleep or whatever and uh like he's trying to get information out of them and they're reluctant to tell him because they don't want to they just they have orders to like not say certain things so like he keeps asking questions and they're just not giving them any answers and that creates some tension um and then yeah the there's that it's more of a forced drama like okay now that you guys have both ships you have the discovery and the lay layer something <laughs> i can't remember the name of it the the levia Something like that. The Russian ship. Just say Russian um, ship. <laughs> Russian ship. <laughs> I tried to remember it. I can't. Um, so now that you have both ships, you'll have to separate. So the Americans have to go on the Discovery and the Russians stay on their own ship and 
everybody parts ways and nobody gets anything. Yes. And I don't I don't know why I, the I, Russians I, would want to give up that ship anyway. Like that's what they came out there for. I, I couldn't give a shit about any of this though when it's happening. There's like no you, you said that there's tension at the start. I don't think there is. I think there's supposed to be tension. But I don't think them not answering these questions really actually creates tension. It's just kinda it just kinda feels like bickering. It's, like it doesn't actually create any sense of like I, I never got the impression the characters were actually in any, any kind of danger because they were surrounded by Russians. Um if anything, they very quickly establish a friendship because, I mean, believe it or not, only one character actually dies in the whole movie, and Maximum. and they make a point. And this is this is the uh, the neighbor who's demanding rent from Peter Parker in Spider Man Two, just for anyone who uh, wants to put an, a, a face to this. But he he dies because he gets sent out in a probe uh, in a little pod over the the big monolith. But they they actually establish a friendship with him and John Lithgow, or something close to resembling one anyway, uh, which is why I knew he was going to die, because they made a point of giving him a couple of funny lines so that we'd give a shit uh, where he does go. It, the cake and pie line. It's the only thing I remember from watching it when I was a kid. The cake and pie line. <laughs> yeah, I... I don't know. Like, I, I don't think... Like, I think on paper, I see what they're trying to do. Oh, on paper, you've got... At the time, and this is actually one of the things that dates it, because obviously by 2010, the idea of the Cold War was, <laughs> like, so gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is so funny. But, right. I mean, the the Soviet Union expanded yeah. in, like, 1990 or something. But, you know, it's in the 80s, so they assume that's still a thing. So, you've got, like, the two sides of the Cold War, which at the time was the most, like, two-sided thing you could think of. In terms of conflict, it's the biggest one that's the one... It's another Romeo and Juliet. Right? So you've got these... They just want to be lovers and nobody will let them. You've got these two sides on the ship and tensions are rising back home. Now, to me, what this says is what they're going for is something like... Uh, I kind of want to say the abyss, but that's not quite... I, what they're going for here is that... And what should happen is that the characters on the ship should in some way have a conflict... And somehow resolve that conflict uh, in light of what's happening in front of them, and it should be a microcosm of what is like the grander thing going on back home. There should be some kind of story that plays out with these characters and how they get to some sort of resolution. Instead, there's never really much of a conflict. They're just kind of weary of each other. Uh, Helen Murren, who's in charge of the Russians, again, she's you know Russian. I mean, I'll, let's be honest. Most of the Russian characters in this aren't actually Russian. They're just doing accents. Um, but she, she and and Roy Schneider are, are very quickly kind of buddy buddy to a point. Like it doesn't really feel like there's much, you know. They, they kind of bond later on by just talking about their kids and what their life's like back home. There's, there's not a lot of it. It's just a little bit of it. Um, you know, like and when we get to the end of the movie, when uh, both sides have like negotiated peace because of the big thing that happens in space. Um, it doesn't really feel like it's been earned or the film's made a point. It's just kind of like, oh, because this big magical thing happened in the sky, everyone went, you know what, our conflict's kind of silly. We should just calm down. Let's, let's just let's calm down and talk peace. Yeah, I guess they, they witness, you know, a miracle, a, a new star in the solar system. And that is... That's but, enough. No, yeah, but no, that's, that's enough to stop Nothing everything. sets this up, though. Like, that's why I'm saying... The characters on the ship should be like a case example for us as the audience. This, right. The characters yeah. on the ship should show us, 
how this is supposed well, to their, work. Their motivation is survival, right? Like they're, they're they're all of a sudden they're in a position where they have to leave right now, and if they both leave right now and they're separate ships, they'll die. So they have to like find a way to reach an agreement so that and work together so that they can survive. Which is not. I mean, I guess could be like a microcosm of what it's the bigger really picture a, is. It's not really a plan. Yeah, but there's no conflict to it. There's no, there's no conflict to them reaching the agreement for it to happen. Roy Shire just comes over and says, hey, we have to leave in two days. I have no evidence as to why we have to leave in two days, but do you trust me? Mm-hmm. And Helle Byron's like, yeah, why not? <laughs> and that's like, there's, there's no <laughs> conflict. There's, there's nothing to actually get over or like argue out to a conclusion. So like, the characters on the ship should act as an example as to why we should believe that the larger scale agrees to like stop fighting at the end. And I get that that's what they kind of want to do and that should feel big and that's what's like, you know, the idea that we were humbled by what's happening in space. And Roy Scheider, he's, he's writing home to his wife throughout the film or he's recording like audio logs to send to his wife uh, messages. Mm-hmm. And it's all mostly exposition for the most part. Uh, oh, definitely. It, 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 this is... Probably, I, I imagine this is probably something that's lifted directly from the book because this kind of stuff works great when you're reading, mm. but not so well when it's being narrated. It's just, it's tedious. It's there to explain things that otherwise wouldn't be explained. And then at the ending, it's like sort of like a, his grand final speeches that are on their way home, uh, you know, for, for the happy ending to play out. Uh, like, honestly, there's only one or two moments in the film where I kind of wake up a little bit to sort of like take it like so i'm like oh that's kind of an interesting kind of thing like i say the most excited i got in the whole movie is when i thought it was set before the star child and that's what it was building up to Uh, and that's why like what we'd seen on earth hadn't been different because it's not that unbelievable that the star child was a little bit later like the idea that because Mm -hmm. keep it i mean hell keep in mind like technically david grew old so you could argue the star child wasn't going to actually arrive at earth until you know, another, you know, 40, 50 years, right? You know, well, we don't know, like, right, when we watch the the movie, we don't know if we're watching the passage of time or if we're watching him age rapidly. Uh, No, that's true, we don't. Um, It's not, I don't think he's aging rapidly. I think if, I think it's one of, it's either the passage of time has been represented in kind of a stylish way, or... I think that he's aging normally, but there's some kind of weird timey-wimey thing that's jumping ahead. So, which, I mean, I suppose maybe it's semantics or if that's different from aging rapidly, but I don't think his body is physically yeah. aging rapidly. I think that, like, in the same way that in this movie, when he kind of appears on the ship to talk to uh, Roy Scheider, he, like, every t- every so often we cut back to him and he's changed to the old version or he's changed back to the young version or he's changed to the really old yeah, version. Yeah, this one's telling us that he changes... Uh, from old to young to young and old again like it doesn't there's no like real um there, there's no like path it's not like he's we meet him when he's young or there's no benjamin button thing where he's going backwards from the star child nah. um it's just it's just a whatever version of him it, is wants to appear i don't think it's wants to it, it, it actually that's actually kind of made some weird sense to me honestly uh this was the one thing that felt kind of like it was actually trying to... Well, a, it felt it had the atmosphere, it had an eeriness, which is why I kind of woke up during this scene. I, this is uh, definitely, for me, this is the best scene. Right? But I, I, 
the the whole like why is he appearing as these different versions to me this was saying that again at this point in the film i was thinking this is pre-star child right i was thinking mm-hmm. that the reason why he's appearing in these different forms is because we're literally in the weird sort of time loop that happened at the end of the first one where we're seeing him like at the different stages of his life and the idea that the rest of his life from when he goes beyond jupiter actually like it, it, it both it's basically all happening all at once and that's why it's jumping mm-hmm. through them right so this and so the same way that he could see himself like sort of age from across the room at the end of the first one it's like no time is kind of folded in, in itself and it's all happening simultaneously so when he's like sort of sent over although it kind of says that it's not really him it's actually just like he's been absorbed by the entity is the monolith right or... so this is this this is some sort of like post star child thing where he's been reborn into something else or yeah or it's like an alien that's using him as a messenger and i mean i guess maybe you could just read from the again just for the perspective of this movie that the end of the first one was just the star child just represents these aliens watching earth or this entity watching earth not that even though I disagree with that, and I think the ending clearly implies that something's about to change, because every single time the start, the, every every time the monolith was reached and challenged in the first movie, it led to a development, it led yeah. to a change. Humans changed yes. forever. Um, and again, it's twenty ten, and nothing's changed. If anything, it feels like time went back a bit. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, I I guess. I, yeah, so so I, I kind of took it as okay. So we're in like a weird timey wimey thing where he's just sort of like randomly just changing between the various stages of him post beyond Jupiter, and that kind of made sense to me. I mean, again, I don't think I'm doing a good job of explaining why. I just, but it kind of in my head made sense to me. No, I I, I understand what you're saying. Um, the problem is though is that then the entire end of the movie isn't Enter the Star Child. It's actually. <laughs> there is some sort of life form on Europa. Which they forgot about for so long. That was like a big deal when they first encountered it. And then it just kind of like, is like, it's not mentioned again until the very end. And it's like, oh, wait, yes, that's right. There was kind of life on Europa. Uh, oh, by the way. <laughs> yes. But that's not the main. We'll get to that in a second. Jupiter turns into a sun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's address that first, shall we? The Jupiter implodes and turns into a star. So now there's two suns in the sky on Earth. And Roy Scheider talks about how everyone born from this day will only know the Earth as having two suns. And that, you know, there's never nighttime because they're, they're up at different times. That sounds like it's really going to screw things up, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> it does, does. I, I guess you could say this is a big change, but I'm not like sure why also i mean that's a good point actually like if jupiter is a star now wouldn't more of the solar system start to like revolve around that well it it depends on the size of i think mean, jupiter i think is a failed star like in reality that's why it's like a gaseous giant but it's um if there so, were on, two... on, on, on. so you're saying technically this was a rebirth of jupiter in a weird way then right yeah uh, Much like a Dave Bowman is reborn as the Star Child, um, so yeah, I think that's you know I think that's technically kind of true um, from what I remember from a 
astronomy courses. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't remember what my point was, though. I was asking if it was going to mess with the orbits of anything else in the solar oh, system. I mean, maybe Jupiter's already pretty big and it's got a big, it's got a lot of moons. Um, it'll definitely mess a lot of those close moons up. And um, I think mostly what it's going to affect is the like nocturnal animals on Earth if there's no nighttime. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's, that's no question. Uh, but the end doesn't present any problems, or the ending presents it as no, it's now daylight forever. Now, now it's almost like now there's no nighttime, so there's no light and dark. Now it's just you know night, night and nighttime and daytime have agreed to to stop fighting, and now it's just daytime all the time. <laughs> that's that's a big theme. That's a big message. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then, yeah, the final shots of the movie, and there's not other stuff to talk about, we're not ending here, but like, uh, but we're kind of talking about the big stuff that happens at the end. Uh, Europa, like you say, has has life on it. There's sort of evidence of that early on. Uh, when they try to send down, like, a probe, it, like, fires the probe into the sun. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or something like that. And and it screws up their, their ship. Their ship doesn't recover from that. It doesn't? What happened to the ship? Uh, it's like it's like um, it wipes out their all their electronics and stuff. Oh yeah, it wiped all the recordings at the very least. Yeah, I remember them saying that now. Yeah, you're right. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the movie, and this was do you know what this was very like, and it came out like a year after it. It, it was very Search for Spock. Like the, the, see the end of Search for Spock, where it goes down to where like the Genesis things went off. That's mm-hmm. what this made me think of. Except instead of finding Spock's coffin, uh, or you know whatever it was the monolith standing there in the the new garden <laughs> the new garden of eden boy there's a lot of parallels here to uh the watchmen tv series <laughs> do you think the Watchmen tv which, which also takes place on uh, europa well that's the parallel you're talking about it's not like there's a lot of parallels and it takes place on europa right I mean, there is a, a Garden of Eden in The Watchmen on Europa. No, but yeah, but that's not in addition. Like you said that as if there was a lot of parallels and it takes place on Europa. No, Euro- the, taking place on Europa is the parallel. Right. right. But I think that there's a lot of parallels from the Europa stuff on in this movie. I, I, I'm just saying don't oversell it as well. <laughs> I'm saying don't, don't sell <laughs> okay. it as, like a, as a huge, like, Oh my god, we've discovered that Watchmen ripped off 2010. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Um, um, it's not impossible, I suppose, but <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, because obviously the music comes in again, which is a nothing moment, might I add. Because in the first one, the music like, comes in as you're starting to realise, and then it really hits the big bombastic notes as the star trail is coming towards Earth. And here, it builds up and has the bombastic notes as it cuts to credits, as, as if we're meant to be mm-hmm. impressed <laughs> that there's life on Europa. Uh, which is notable, because the entity, the monolith with David's voice, sends out a message from... Because he talks to Hal, David talks to Hal, and they're all buddy-buddy. <laughs> right. And it says to him to send out this message, and it's basically, um, everyone, be at peace, no more fighting, be nice to each other, go, go and explore all the worlds, like, they're all yours. However, stay away from Europa. <laughs> we right. got one rule. Which it is 
Which is odd because the monolith in the 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 first film has been leading man to Europa. But then when we get there, it turns out they didn't want us there. Everything so, everything about this is shit. What was the point? <laughs> everything about this is shit. Because What was the point of sending humans out there? None of this makes any sense with anything that happened in the first movie. Um like not not even just the fact that they want the humans to stay away, but just the idea that okay, what you so we're we're just here to build life on Europa, but you only want Europa. Like what 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 yeah why why did you lead anything out there before was it, is it just because you needed a meat puppet to talk through you needed like David to be be your voice <laughs> to communicate back to yes everyone? but nobody else I don't know I feel like this ruins all of the best theories of the first movie which is why I'm never counting this as canon <laughs> no I don't know I don't think I would either never never counting it as canon it is a fun fan theory <laughs> or a fan made movie. <laughs> I think the worst thing is, is that none of the things that it chooses are the balls it picks. It's all kind of weirdly safe in the choices it makes yeah. in terms of what to yeah. answer things with. Um, yeah. Except for that, the, the pen animation that's used in the, <laughs> the, the floating pens that Roy Scheider is using to demonstrate the ships. Mm-hmm. It's clearly like CGI'd in there. <laughs> Oh, the planet, I think, is is CGI, which is, you know, a pretty early use of that for 1983 or 84. But how did we start talking about CGI? When did we change conversation? <laughs> I'm confused. Well, I don't know. Like, why not? <laughs> why not talk about it? <laughs> oh, I don't know. What were we talking about before? I feel like we're, I feel like we're still going there. Uh, just that you don't like the movie. That, that's ruined. not what it was. There was more to it than that. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, were, there was thoughts there, there was things alright fine talk about CGI <laughs> yeah I mean I just I was surprised to see so much CGI used in a movie from 1984 but the whole Jupiter like imploding into itself was very like just computer graphics it looked good I thought you know it depends except for the pens the pens are not they, they don't look good but do you know they were actually CG? Well, I don't know. They looked terrible. Yeah, but I, I was like, like, you sure it's not a different technique that just you're you're saying? Oh, I assume that's CG. Well, they definitely didn't use the tape on the on the, on the the glass. Oh, I, I, I buy that, but there's other techniques to use. I mean, 1984. I mean, it's not impossible that there was some CG in this, but I. I I think the planet was. I think Jupiter was. It's a bit early to assume, I guess, is what I'm saying. But you may be right. Maybe it is CG. Mm. But I, I wouldn't have assumed it was CG. Mm. I, I'm pretty sure the, the Jupiter stuff was. I don't know what else it could have been. Oh, the Jupiter stuff probably is. When the vortex starts to like go in. Yeah, that looks mm-hmm. like it's probably some sort of early primitive CG. Um. Yeah. Yeah, millions of floating monoliths. And... I just everything everything about the monolith in the first movie was like pushing humans to something new and I don't mm-hmm. like maybe you could argue that this is pushing peace on earth but I never got any impression that the monolith or whoever was behind the monolith was trying to affect how we behaved it was just pushing us to the next stage um right and we definitely would not react that way right if we no. if there was a a miracle in the sky we wouldn't go like okay we should all be at peace now no that'd be it would be like uh 
that great episode of Star Trek The Next Generation of First Contact where uh, they go to an alien world and accidentally expose themselves as n not the same race and that world is trying to be like we're just not ready for this like we are not ready to we are not ready to tell our planet that there are other beings out there it will cause wars uh, people will be like people won't be able to deal with it because of their religious backgrounds like that's that's the more realistic way that we would react <laughs> Not like okay, we can be well, peace now. Oh, there's something buy, bigger out there. I don't buy this. I, I get what you're saying here, and that the like the monolith aliens to us are Star Trek's you know federation to that planet in that episode. I don't mm -hmm. buy for a second that the idiots on this planet would come to the realization that we're not ready for this. We, like the idiots on this planet would be jumping head first and wanting to explore and find out how they could exploit things and gain from it. They, I the see. characters. So we're the, we're the villains. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the characters in that episode of, of, of Next Gen, like, the, the leader was, like, smart enough to realize that, yeah, this is going to, like, break down our society. I don't think the leaders mm -hmm. of, of Earth have proven to me ever that they would actually be thoughtful enough to step back and say, no, we're not ready for this. No, I mean, I'm not saying that they are either. I'm <laughs> saying that we would definitely react the way that they think that we would, which would be, like, yes. mass mass killings of each other. <laughs> Most probably. There'd be like a, a weird like race to I don't know, probably explore Europa even though it's that's the one thing it told us not to do. <laughs> right. Because they can't tell us what to do. This is America and Earth. <laughs> that's just human nature apparently. Um Right. Yeah. I, I yeah the, I don't know. Every, everything that tries to add on just muddies up everything I ever liked about the ideas of what the monolith is and where it comes from. And it makes things mm -hmm. too specific in a lot of ways, where it's like, no, now it wants to create like a new world on Europa. Like, what, is it trying to colonize Europa because wherever this came from, they're out, they don't have a home anymore? Like, mm -hmm. it makes them feel less omnipotent. It makes them feel less, like, yeah, you know, larger than life, I guess. It, it makes it feel like there wasn't really a plan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but of course there had to have been. Yeah, it felt like they knew what they were doing the first one, and this one it feels like, yeah, like we would trust something bigger than yes. ourselves, you know. But this one feels like uh, it feels like no, the, we're just gonna colonize this part of your solar system, and you guys just stay away. It feels like they're winging it, and that's not that's not fun. That's not it's not engaging. It's not interesting. Uh, at least not when it's presented this way, anyway. Um, right. It does have John Lithgow though. He's wasted in this. Who can't see out of his own helmet. He, because of all the breathing he has. He, he, he's like, you don't see him until he's eventually woken up like 40 minutes into the movie. Um, mm -hmm. And he barely really does much, to be honest. He, he has a spacewalk, he talks to Roy Scheider a few times. He's not really all that present. Well, he's there to befriend Maximoff before Maximoff dies. Yes, that's his whole thing. That's basically all he's there but for. I, I just thought it was so funny that, like, clearly his, his like, space helmet was fogged up from all the breathing he was doing and he was having these scenes but you can't see his face through it <laughs> because of like they couldn't like take a set second to wipe that down yeah well i guess it's realistic like i mean frank Poole and dave bowman can see out theirs 
they breathed a lot like we heard it yeah but like they, they, they mentioned that he was nervous and he was told to not breathe heavy but he kept breathing heavy so i, I think the point was is that to show that how how little he'd he adhered to that that advice when they were on their spacewalk uh, I, I think maybe the costume was just too difficult to get on and off for them to wipe it down between takes i mean that's possible <laughs> that's, that's very possible uh yeah um yeah honestly i think this is the weird thing the characters get way more time in this movie there's there's more of them they have more conversations and yet somehow they don't really achieve anything with them or give them any kind of story like i never really get a sense like i mean yeah sure like they agree to like be on the same ship even though they've been ordered not to so they can get away at Mm -hmm. the end um but why does yeah, why does Bob Balaban has the has the big emotional thing with Hal? Yeah, he cries as Hal's willing to sacrifice himself. But but why does no one question this? We have to leave in two days. No one does. Like Roy Scheider gets this 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 call. Well, I mean, the monolith disappears. So. And stuff starts happening on Jupiter. <laughs> I mean, I that could be enough. I, uh, like, but he gets this call, you know, Hal says there's a message, and he's like, what's the message? And I was like, I, you know, this is a weird message. Well, who's sending it? It's like, well, I don't know. And then eventually it says it's David, and then David shows up behind him, and that's when he starts, like, you know, cycling through all the, the versions. Um, But he goes over to the, the other captain, to Helen, Mur- Helen Murren, and he's like, hey, we have to leave in two days. We, this is how we'll do it. Uh, You know, you use, use the fuel from the, 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 the Discovery to launches, and then the fuel from this ship to sort of take us home. Uh, and that's kind of your, your thing. Um, I, and, yep, no more... I just... No more Cold War. I just, I don't... It's baffling now that I'm thinking back on it how little actually happens in terms of any kind of engaging character plot. There's, like, there's very little danger. Characters get into dangerous situations. There's very little times that are at risk. There's very little time that, the, like I say, I, I mentioned it earlier, but no conflict. There's very little conflict, really between characters where mm-hmm. something has to be resolved um it's it's amazing to me how little actually happens in this movie despite the all the weird crazy ideas that we're talking about how oh, jupiter turns into a sun and there's life on europa and there's all these things but there's a million billion monoliths <laughs> it just it just it feels like it's saying absolutely nothing and it's technically, and that's technically not true. It is trying to say a couple of things about peace on earth and whatnot, but it feels like it's saying absolutely <laughs> that nothing. Thing. Right. Right. No, I mean, I agree. It's just, um, it, it, it shouldn't exist. The movie shouldn't exist. Like, you can't follow up a masterpiece. So, I mean, as if it were just a, a decent sci fi, like if 2001 was a was not a Kubrick movie and it was very similar to the book that was written uh, alongside it, then it would be a decent follow-up to that. But it's not that it's not like it's, we have the Kubrick masterpiece and this is never going to come close to it. And it's just, it's, it's hollow. It's got but this, here's just a th- I don't want to say fan service. Cause it seems like, well, they have to go to the ship. That's the whole point. But here's the thing though. Like, you're kind of saying, oh, you can't follow up a masterpiece, but it, it, it can have still been good. Like, this is the problem. The movie's not even that good. Like, it, it's not like... 
It's, 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 it's not like yeah it's, it's not even like trying to be part of the same universe it's not like we got like you know the 10 out of 10 that was that was 2001 and then someone made like a really solid 8 out of 10 where it's it's really good but uh, like sort of suspenseful science fiction where well i mean that could be done right because i think the shining and doctor sleep is sort of that situation i was not sure but i mean i don't even have specific examples like it could just like let's say this movie was just they go out to the ship they turn on hal and Hal's like manipulating them and it becomes like a movie about Hal trying to kill them. Don't get me wrong, that would be uninspired and really simple and whatever. But if it was well directed and it was tense and it felt like they were constantly in danger, it would feel like, oh, the characters have encountered a, a problem that they can't get out of and, and whatever. It's, it would be something. But mm-hmm. the, the more I watched this movie, the more it kept going. I, I felt like it was still just like going through the setup. I, and then it got to the point where I'm 90 minutes into a two-hour movie and I'm like, why does this still feel like setup? Why, why do I feel like I've not actually started the plot yet? Right. I mean, the only reason as a fan, like I would want to see what is actually out there in Jupiter, want to see another crew go there is to get answers for well, what's next for humanity. But we don't get those answers. We get a different thing that's like, oh, it's not actually about humanity anymore. This is about the aliens. So I... I I find that just unsatisfying. I I I guess all I'm really saying is that this could have been a really solid science fiction movie that just unfortunately can't live up to how amazing you know 2001 is. But that's not what we have. We have a really mm-hmm. mediocre nostalgia film that answers things that were better left unanswered and is kind of just dull and not really doing anything as it's, <laughs> as it's doing this like it. It genuinely just, I, I couldn't believe, the more, and it, it's actually annoying me more than th- I think about it, where, it, like, there's so much of this film that's spent, like, we, we have, like, a slow spacewalk with John Lithgow and the Russian dude as they're going over to the the ship when they find the ship. Because, obviously, they get to Europa mm-hmm. first, and or they go past Europa and the life thing happens. But they find the ship, and they're going to over to it, and they open up, and I'm like, why why isn't there like more of them searching through the ship looking for something there's, there's like a there's like a small moment which was actually good right there's a moment where they like the russian guy takes off his his helmet which i thought don't you have a device to read the air to tell you it's okay rather than just like taking <laughs> the helmet off and seeing if it's all right because that's effectively what he does but he opens up his helmet and he's like oh i think there's oxygen like i'm breathing okay that's all right i'm like again nothing to just tell you that whatever but he starts breathing and then he smells something and he's like, oh, something smells like it's rotten. And then he gets really scared and he, he puts the mask back down. And they get really worried. That, oh, is, is there something dead on board? Is there dead bodies? And that they're assured it's not. And we, we just hear kind of like in narration, oh, it was some food that went bad in the, you know, in, in the galley. Like, okay. Yeah. And that's it. That is the, the, that is the extent of the intrigue of finding the ship and like getting aboard for the first time. Like the next time we cut aboard the ship, John Lithgow and Roy Scheider are just sitting in the the, the you know the the, the the bridge, just sort of like all the lights are on, everything's working, and they're just kind of like da 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 da. Uh, here's the readings. Uh, that's the, we've got a fuel to get home. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. I just I don't know. Like it. <sighs> You're right. That scene is very is is actually like it's shot well, and you know he has genuine like terror in his face when he's doing the scene. So you're like, what is there? What what's on the ship with him does he see something he smells something okay maybe maybe uh he knows it's like a dead body that he smells or something and but it, yeah it turns out to be nothing and not only does it turn out to be nothing but like 
it's revealed in like a nothing line. <laughs> so like that was a good scene, but it like amounted to nothing. Yeah, amounted to nothing. Um, yeah, and it doesn't really focus on any one idea for too long either. It kind of feels like okay, we're teasing that Hal could go bad, and there's like one good scene that comes from it, but otherwise that's just kind of all it is. Um, you know, we're talking about the monolith, but then the monolith disappears. You know, it kills the one guy because he gets too close in the pod, but then it disappears. And then it's like, okay, well, what now? Oh, there's a big swirling void with a million monoliths in it on Jupiter. What was that building up to? Who knows? Um, I mean, is it is it saying that the monolith or the people behind the monolith, like, they're choosing to sort of take Jupiter to the next stage of its life and, you know, rebirthing it? Uh, even though it's not a sentient thing, because it's not life, it's just a planet, but, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> But it's function, there's energy. <laughs> yeah. What what is a planet yeah. but a ball of energy really? I mean, mass and energy. That's all it really is. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's disappointing. It's a disappointing film. Uh especially for a film that has Lithgow in it. Oh yeah, that's the other futuristic thing, is that uh they have a private tank with uh dolphins that well I mean, it looks like it connects to like a bigger pool. But there's like a little bit that comes into the house next to the dining table. And it's why it's a marine biologist or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess that explains why specifically they have this. But it's still even... I don't know how many marine biologists have a big fancy house that has like a dolphin pool that... Some people have goldfish. <laughs> Some people have dolphins. <laughs> oh dear. He's got a much younger wife as well, by the way. Uh... Yeah. Well, they say he's Haywood Floyd and then he's got this little kid that's a boy. And you're like, wait... He had a daughter in the first movie, Which, but they do acknowledge that she's, yeah, his his wife is gone and he's got a a daughter who's seventeen now or something. Yes, um, which I guess she's off at college or something because she's not exactly like a full adult yet. So why wouldn't she be with him? That's that's a bit weird. But whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Shacking up with her boyfriend. Oh, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, Dad's moved on to a younger girl, so. <laughs> gotta get out of that yeah house. he's got a young wife um there is other stuff on earth we have to talk about though because there's a couple of weird things that happen where the entity sends like david's consciousness to his his widow's like tv <laughs> in the kitchen just so he can say hey i'm not really david but i have all of david's like knowledge and memories uh that's why i know i still love you he wants to say goodbye yeah i want to say yeah. goodbye love you bye like that's <laughs> I don't think we knew that David had uh, a girl back nah, home. Nah, I don't think we did. Because I was like, who is this woman? Like, who is this woman in our kitchen that we've suddenly cut to? Yeah, it, it seems a bit odd that they would send somebody to on that mission who had a family. Yes. Since they had to be in isolation for so long. Well, that, that was the big thing from the Roy Scheider scene at the dinner table is that he's like really quiet for a long time because he's scared of telling his wife that he's going on this mission to Jupiter that's going to be two and a half years. Uh, yeah. It's so funny that he's playing William Sylvester's character because he looks nothing like him and sounds nothing like him and has very different personalities. Like, Roy Scheider looks like he just came straight off of Amity Island mm -hmm. from Jaws and like made this movie. He does, yes. It's like the same. He's the same character, basically. I mean, there's no fear of water, but like, 
just like family guy like just dad yeah they, they could, <laughs> dad's going into space they could have made him scared of space but they didn't bother doing that uh yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, He's tanned. Because there's, there's a whole big bit where they have to like slingshot around Jupiter, uh, and like one of the Russian like uh, astronauts like basically just wants to hug him because she's scared. Well, they might die. Yeah. Like it, it seems it, it does make the scene feel very dangerous. <laughs> like I actually I do like that scene. Yes. I mean, I got that they might die. I, I did get that part. Yes. Well, good. Just to, I don't know. You felt you, you said that to as if like I didn't understand why she was scared. I'm like, I, I got it. Mm, I don't know if you did. I, I got it. She, she's scared of, of death because they're they've done the math, but you know, math's one thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I like that scene actually. That's fine. Yeah, it's okay. Like it's honestly so in a vacuum, it's fine. It, it was tense. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it'd be nice if that character that he hugs like. Like had like an ounce or like a line of dialogue for the rest of the film or or something. I, I don't know. Well, she doesn't speak English. She could say something to one of the other Russians, <laughs> or she 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 can have a scene that's like not dependent on dialogue where she's in danger or something. Or because seeing her be scared in this scene would make us care a little bit about her. So if she's in a scene later on where there's a bit of jeopardy and she's the one in jeopardy, that could work for us as an audience. Because yes. we'll feel something. Plus, she's like the pretty one, so people care about pretty ones. Um, we're not done with Earth, though. We uh, there's also is it is it David's mother that David goes to in the hospital and kind of like we see like as if a ghost is picking up her brush and co- brushes her hair, and then she <laughs> like dies with a smile on her face. I hated this scene. What is this in my like, my two thousand and one <laughs> movie? Like, what what is this? Like, you're making this feel so silly, and not because nothing nothing in two thousand one feels silly. This scene felt like a this felt like a scene that's on like a CW show, like a, like, like a Supernatural, right? You're watching Supernatural, and this is the opening scene to show there's some sort of creepy ghost in the room with the old lady. Yeah, why is Dave able to lift up the brush? That's a good question. <laughs> All right. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very good question. I don't know. I don't know. I, these things beg, beg discussion. <laughs> I think they're they're odd. Um, it just it doesn't have the gravitas. It doesn't share the sense of wonder, the sense of awe. It feels just more like a typical schlocky bunch of weird things. It just happens to be kind of taking from a better movie. So we mm-hmm. we you know as you know we we subscribe to the idea that the monolith is important and and special and we subscribe to HAL nine thousands like you know like terror and like the the potential fear of it, but ultimately this film doesn't do anything to earn any of that. It's ju- it's just riding on the success of the previous one, and obviously I mean that's somewhat true for any sequel, but a good sequel should they exist. Um, will find a new story to tell with its characters. It'll find a new message or a new thing to say. Um, and in- instead of feeling like this provokes an idea where it makes me think or it makes me talk about or think about what it's presented, because it's not like it's a clear message in 2001. Like, you have to think about it. You have to interpret it. You have to give it some thought and consider it. This is like yep. the total opposite where at the end I'm like, Okay, you're kind of saying something. I get it, but it just feels saccharine. It just feels kind. Of, it feels like I opened up a greeting card and there's like a little, 
limerick about a you know a little life message like be nice to one another <laughs> that, that's how this ending feels it's stay off my lawn my lawn is europa so <laughs> i don't know yeah is it i mean it has like this happy ending like with the whole peace on earth thing but it also has this like message of also we're going to be in your neighborhood now so um maybe be afraid of us <laughs> uh, yeah i don't get i mean maybe that's what the sequels are about i mean i don't, I don't even get it because it's like go go search the skies look for other planets that you they, they all belong to you but don't come to europa like why does why is this why are these beings encouraging them to seek out and like conquer more planets but just don't bother us on on europa yeah uh it's kind of weird just let us do our thing i don't i don't no need to come over no need to peek over the fence not doing anything wrong here the, the, the worst part <laughs> of this though is that you're cracking these jokes but like i i hate how this makes us talk about their motives in a way that just kind of feels like you know yeah, because obviously in the first film we talk about their motives, we talk about, okay, what does the monolith mean and what are they trying to provoke? But it, it all feels like it has some sort of grand purpose that feels special. And mm-hmm. this, though, when we talk about their motives, we're cracking jokes about, because it doesn't make much sense, and we're cracking jokes about how, uh, you know, it's like these silly things that they, they, it seems to want, or it's conflicting messages. So, it, I don't know. I, I, I hate how it makes me ask questions that are similar to the questions I asked in the first one, but instead of like being excited about the answers, I'm just sort of annoyed, annoyed at the, the, what it's making <laughs> me think. I don't know. I, yeah, it, 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 put it this way. It takes all the special qualities of the first one and waters them down so that, so, so there's more of it to drink. And it just it feels yeah. unsatisfying the entire time. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll put you at your misery. Yeah, I agree. What would you want to rate it? Wait a uh it's uh yeah it's a huge disappointment um you know i haven't seen the film since i was very young so i don't really remember how i felt about it then um but i know i never had a desire to rewatch it <laughs> so um i'd say after watching it and after our, our discussion i'm gonna give it a five because there's some things in it that are you know it's not unwatchable um Dauntless Gal does good performance. Uh, a lot of people put do, you know, a good performance. Um, some of the model work is pretty pretty nice, but it doesn't look as pretty, or sound as pretty. <laughs> but um, yeah, ultimately, as as a super fan of the first film, this is nothing but a huge disappointment. So, uh, I'll give it a five. Yeah. It's funny because it is a disappointment, but it's it's not a disappointment in the sense that the disappointment is just that it exists rather than the movie mm-hmm. itself. <laughs> but it's also a disappointment just in terms of quality because it's not like if you take the first one out of it that this is a good movie. It's not. It relies Mm-mm. all the whole time. It's relying upon that first movie. It doesn't build or establish anything for itself other than the the conflict between uh you know east and west, I guess. But even that's like whatever um so yeah i mean i agree it's a five out of ten like yeah like like it's got a good cast it's got some pretty decent looking model work it's got 
you know, it, it's perfectly like fine in how it's made, but when, when you know when you're just hitting this level of like if this is you know a standard quality directed movie when when you're f- trying to say it's in the same world as this you know stanley kubrick film it's like nah. and mm-hmm. truth be told dr sleep well it's a better movie than this i do think has kind of the same problem and in the sense when you compare it to the shining it's like anytime you make me think of how that original film looked you're you're just doing yourself a, a disservice because now i'm just thinking about how much worse this looks uh, well, sure. I just I do think that was a, a fairly decent sequel, and for such a challenging movie to make a sequel it, to, well, I think it's pretty decent. But notably, it's at its worst when it's it's trying to tie back in more to the the into the Shining. Like, see, see when it's doing its own thing with the the weird like thought vampires, <laughs> the energy vampires, like the rose the hat. Yeah. When it's doing its own thing, it's just like, oh, this is an interesting little like horror uh, kind of vampire slash like fantasy movie but when it starts mm-hmm. to like go full nostalgia i don't want to spoil anything but when it starts to go full nostalgia later on in the film it's like oh, okay like oh i don't hate that part so much yeah but it's like two and a half hours long you couldn't uh, you know trim some of this crap at the end like oh, get get it down to a reasonable runtime horror <laughs> movie shouldn't be two and a half hours i'm just saying unless you're midsummer apparently because that was great but yeah gotta watch that three hour cut <laughs> the director's cut yes uh, all right. Uh, there we go. Okay. That's 2010. The year we mm-hmm. made contact. Yeah, a bit of a disappointment. Sorry, guys. Yeah. I think a lot of people wanted us to watch this. All right, but yeah, but they may have wanted us to watch it because they knew we'd hate it. <laughs> they, they wanted to hear us <laughs> tear it apart, which... Uh, um, I've heard people describe it as a underrated sequel or underrated film, but... They're wrong. Yeah, it's got a much <laughs> higher rate than IMDb than I thought. It's got a six point eight, which is actually fairly decent. Like, there's legitimately good films with lower ratings than that. So that's yeah. that's a uh, that's a bit odd to me. But hey, all right. Uh, yes. Um, I can be that this far into the review. Put the word Sal, Sal nine thousand, into the uh Love it. into the comments. S A L. Yes, S A L. Uh, they changed one letter. That's that's all they did. <laughs> So put that in the comments. Tara's going to post for the thumbnail. Uh, so here we go. Three, two, one. Pose. It's my star baby. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Um, no. Uh, yeah. That's just basically it. Um, I, should, I should thank our Patreon producers, shouldn't I? So thank you to Tyler Hess, Cindy Palacios, David Sharp, Board Now, Al Treisman, Christopher Moy, Brett Williams and David Brown. Uh, they're our Patreon producers for the month, so thank you to you all. Tara, why don't you tell them about Patreon? Yeah, if you enjoy the reviews, please check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash TV, and donating as low as $1 per month will get you bonus episodes of The Ace. So you can check out your favorite B-movies. A lot of sequels that we do are going to be on the bonus episodes for, for some other franchises, like... Uh, which ones do we do? Philadelphia Experiment 2. Um, we're going to be doing all the Tremors sequels. Starship Trooper sequels are going to be there. So uh, if you're interested in continuing those sagas, check that out. And this was a Patreon vote, this movie. So 
be a part of the vote. Is that $5 for the vote? Yes. $5 gets you voting access. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so there you go. That's, uh, that's 2010. Yeah, I feel like I was kind of low energy on this one. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Don't drink enough booze like you did with the Westworld review. That's that's. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there you go. That that's the that's the that's the movie. Uh, you can of course also support us by hitting the like button on YouTube, subscribe, comment. All these things are really good for helping the YouTube algorithm. Uh, you can of course also get us on the Twitters at mailed underscore fudge for channel updates. But otherwise, that is us. So. Thank you once again for watching or listening. We always appreciate it. Keep watching science fiction and computer at Salsa. Come on, you apes. You want to live forever.